0: You're listening to True Heart. Amy and Scott Mallon dive deep with celebrities, mavericks, visionaries, and real-life heroes to find out what sets their souls on fire. Here's Amy and Scott. We're back, baby. We're back. For another episode of the True Heart podcast. We're so happy to be here with all of you.
1: Yeah, and thanks for joining us. Uh, We would love it if you would give us a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. You can find us wherever podcasts are found. Uh, and subscribe. You can also join us on YouTube if you want to watch the show and subscribe there.
0: Yes. And if you're already here watching right now on YouTube, then you are in for a real treat because not only do you get to hear, but you also get to see today's amazing guest, dun, 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 Blake Lewis.
1: It's funny that you try to just almost kind of beatbox there for a second because Blake is such a great beatboxer. I
0: literally have no beatboxing ability. Yeah,
1: I have zero. So you're going to see one of the best beatboxers in the world.
0: That's right. Um, And, you know, Blake sang his way and beatboxed his way into the hearts of fans all over the world um, on his time with American Idol. And um, he's gone on to have a very successful and also interesting winding road of a musical career and lots of
1: highs and lows. Yeah.
0: And and he opens up, he's super authentic about the journey and the lessons that he's learned along the way. So it's
1: very powerful.
0: Let's check it out. And he's a
1: straight shooter. I mean, he doesn't, he just tells it exactly like it was, which is, which is very cool.
0: We're so excited to welcome our good friend, Blake Lewis to the show. The musical story of Blake Lewis begins in the rich Seattle music scene in which B. Shorty, a moniker earned in his teens, soaked up a musical education in Seattle's a cappella, hip hop, and rave scenes. He mastered the art of songwriting, beatboxing, and began learning music production in both an a cappella group, Kickshaw, and rap group, Unexpected Arrival. With his rap group, Blake received his first taste of recognition when their hit, Take Control, dominated Seattle radio. It was his magnetic rise to stardom on season six of American Idol that captured international attention. He was a natural standout, introducing America to the art of beatboxing. His debut album, Audio Daydream, landed him in the top ten of Billboard's top 100. His follow-up record, the chart-topping Heartbreak on Vinyl, secured Blake two number one Billboard dance singles and solidified his status as a producer. Blake has hit the ground running as a songwriter, performer, beatboxer, and producer. Having produced four of his own albums to critical acclaim, Blake has had the pleasure of collaborating with YouTube sensation Postmodern Jukebox, creating multiple videos with millions of views. When he isn't performing or writing, Blake focuses his time on giving master beatboxing clinics and producing artists such as Rising Star, Olivia Cooper Harris, and the enigmatic October Ryan. His current project, The Private Language, is a modern mixture of funk, dance, and electronic music. When asked to describe the sound of The Private Language, one should envision the soundtrack to a perfect, chic, and slightly inebriated desert night. Blake seeks a life of a musical chameleon. I never wanted to stick to one style or stay in one place, he says. By leaning into a neat blend of many genres and sounds, he strives to always make music for those that color outside of the lines let's get into it with blake let's jump right in blake because there's so much to chat about with you at, you know you're not just someone that we love on a personal level because you're an amazing human being but you're such an incredible music talent and you've had this amazing journey which um, many of your fans got got to watch like we all did on american idol and we'll, we'll get to that in a few moments but let's um let's start where it kind of all began with your origin story What were the musicians that inspired you growing up?
2: Oh, man, it's countless. But um, I grew up, you know, as most kids do, listening to what their parents listening, Uh, you know, what's on what's on the radio at that time and what, you know, your family members are maybe, you know, throwing some vinyl down and listening to. But um, I would say early influences was definitely my mom, who was like more of a bluegrass singer And, uh, you know, so I grew up with that kind of rooted Appalachian harmonies and um, stuff like um, Linda Ronstadt, The Judds, um, Chad Atkins, that kind of stuff from my mom's side, but also The Rock. And then um, also my dad was like super into like Dire Straits, The Police. that side of rock in the eighties. And when I started hearing stuff on the radio, I was like, in love with more of the synth wave, the more pop like Duran Duran, U2, Um, anything anthemic, I, I really gravitated towards and then of course, like Michael Jackson, and Prince. And, you know, after that, like, you know, when you start developing who you are in junior high and high school, I got into everything um, and I mean everything. I started playing classical piano. I was into like chamber music to acapella music to hip hop, industrial drum and bass, metal, all that good stuff. So, um, you know, some favorite albums and people like in high school. Um, I really got into 311, Tonic, Duncan Chic, Bjork, um you know a lot of female songwriters at the at the time um but like Janet jackson and madonna and just everything anything that i loved pop music but i also loved like the really dark you know technical electronica trip-hop i loved trip-hop um anything that was moody and sexy anything with the groove i got into world beat so <laughs> that's a long-winded answer but um you know when people say they're like oh i'm into everything i'm like i literally have like the weirdest vinyl collection so yeah <laughs> that's
0: that's super awesome and you can actually it makes sense now that you share that like see all of those influences in your music because you know in each album that you've put out there's been different vibes to it and you've done more of the pop route, you've done soulful records, you've done more of the dance electronica. So I could see those influences in your music. Um, If you could collab Mm -hmm. with any artist that's out today, who would you wanna work with?
2: I've been very fortunate to collaborate with a lot of amazing artists already, but um, I would have to say, like just going back to that, what I said before, like the old school, like Duran Duran, Sting. Um, I would like high school. I loved like when Jill Scott came out, I always wanted to like do like a beatbox loop performance for her. That's like the nice thing of what I can do. I can always lend either a vocal or drums to someone with my mouth. So um, I, I and blessed to be part of such amazing hip hop growing up. Um, I got to do so many shows with legends. So, um, you know, uh, to to beatbox for Black Thought of the Roots or Most Deaf, you know, um, that'd be that'd be killer. That's that's up there on the top five for sure. Um, and then like current artists, you know, like I love Bruno Mars and um, there's just so much amazing music out there right now. Um, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what's so special about what you do is not only do you have this amazing voice, which really transcends, you know, to any genre. We've heard you, you know, at at our events. Do you like the the current hits with the retro, like nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties vibe, like you toured with Postmodern Jukebox, to you know, singing more of the the current like R and B soul, and then you know, dance. Um, style records, um, but then you also have this other side of you, which is a totally unique and special gift as a beatboxer. So, how did you like discover that you could do that? And then, how does one train to make all of these crazy, amazing sounds with your voice? And and almost like and I'm blanking on his name right now, but the incredibly talented actor from um, the Police Academy movies. <laughs> Um, we've heard you do that, and it's incredible.
2: Michael Winslow. from
0: Michael Winslow, that's it. He was just on America's Got Talent.
2: (laughs) Um, I was a really annoying child. (laughs) I was, I mean, I have to be ADHD. I've never been diagnosed, but I was crazy. I was like, I was always making noise. I was an only child, and... I grew up in a neighborhood with no kids until we moved when I was 10. So I was always, you know, just coming up with song, little ditties and um, impersonating people. I, I was I'm in love with comedy. I've, I've always been just as much as music. Um, I would go to comedy shows by myself as soon as I became of age and always wanted to be on SNL. That was like, you know, like a secret dream of mine, just even just to do one sketch like on that on a good sketch show Spe- specifically living color when it was out. Um, but, um, Michael Winslow, good call on that. Um, he definitely as a kid, I was like, Whoa, that's dope. But mainly Robin Williams. Um, he was probably my, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> my biggest influence. Um, when I saw Morgan Mindy, when I was like four or five and cause I just, you know, I think every kid was, you know, and, um, Later in life, I got to meet him and talk to him a couple times on the phone. And, you know, um, there's nothing like that moment. You know, it's just like off oh, flashes, flashes back to childhood and nostalgia. And, you know, um, but really it was cartoons. I mean, I, I loved Warner Brothers over Disney, Hanna-Barbera, um, Tex Avery, Chuck Jones, um, you know, Mel Blanks and um, just an affinity for animation and and comedy. And um, that really kind of inspired the beatbox subconsciously. I it's like the most roundabout way of telling how I became a beatboxer, but it was more the influence of comedy and rhythm than just like specific musicians or hip-hop um, because I got into beatboxing before I was into hip-hop. Um, I was a skater and I would always film my friends and I'd always be one like, like the most simple generic beat. And um, I didn't know it was called beatboxing. Um, I, you know, I was, I was very naive to the hip-hop world or the origin of hip-hop in general, until I was mid-high school, which was, you know, 97, 98. Um, Granted, I listened to, you know, amazing hip-hop from the early 90s, but I didn't know, you know, I'd I'd maybe seen the Fat Boys um, and maybe seen Dougie Fresh, but it didn't click back then, you know what I mean? To me, it still, it it wasn't like the light bulb switch on um, until I saw an acapella group and It was the same week the first episode of South Park aired, which I think was like August of 97 or 98, something like that. And that first month I saw an acapella group called Impact and there was a beatbox in there. And I was like, wait, like you can you can do this like people do this, you know, and it's a a job. You get paid to make noise with your mouth. (laughs) Um, Besides singing, you know, because I've been to tons of concerts, but never seen beatboxing. So like instantly I just like went down the rabbit hole and, uh, you know, everything was unlocked. It was like level up. It was like, you know, you've reached the next level. And uh, I told the uh, beatboxer whose name is Matthew Selby, who is like the head producer of all Disneyland properties for like any entertainment you see um, that's live on their properties. He arranges it and puts it together. Um, so I met him and I told him a week later, I was like, I'm coming back and I'm going to be a beatboxer. And he's like, all right, kid, slow down, you know, <laughs> like, whatever. I've been doing this my whole life. And I came back a week later and he was like, holy, like, wait, okay. just the
0: progression in one week of what you had leveled mm-hmm. up and
2: learned. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I had been doing it my whole life, not knowing Whoa. it was a thing, not knowing it was a thing. Like, I wasn't, like, amazing, but he was, like, holy crap. Like, and he just gave me a couple suggestions, and then within a year I was opening for them, which was, you know, crazy. Wow. And um, I kind of, like, by junior year of, end of junior year of high school, I already knew what I wanted to do. Uh, I didn't know how to attack it or, like, how to, like, get in an a cappella group or anything, but a year after that, uh, I went to a jazz um, competition and um, he was doing a class and I went into it and he pu- he pulled me up and we jammed and then he said, "Hey, I got an audition for you. I'm leaving to California to do this Disney thing. This is 23 years ago, and uh, like I ha- I need a replacement for my group, um, which I already have, but." the person that we're taking is now leaving another acapella group behind, which is called Kickshot And I went and auditioned for them for two days and I immediately got in it. And right out of high school, I was a full time musician. We had 32 gigs in 30 days the first month that I was with them, which was insane.
0: <laughs> wow. And that's like the real life pitch perfect. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people who weren't familiar with acapella you know, really got to know it through those films, and that this is like competitive, and people are doing it at the high school and college level, um, and then obviously taking the show on the road and performing professionally. But that's that's really then where where your roots began, right? And where where you where you learn the ropes.
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. It was um, it was only six months out of high school. I was working at Circus City. But at that same time, I was uh, going to raves. I was like big into, I'm still big into it. I was, last night I was with Darude <laughs> till like four in the morning, raving here in in, in, in Vegas, <laughs> uh, performing a song with him that we did in 2008. But <clears throat> I digress. Uh, at that same time, I was in a hip hop group called Unexpected Arrival, which I wrote the hooks for, that Twista ended up being on the track. And I so I had a number one in Seattle with unexpected arrival and twista that i wrote the hook for That's that amazing. i originally sang the the hook for so it was it was really crazy i'm you know on the weekends i would be performing a cappella hip hop and then hosting raves like 4000 people underground raves with i mean massive like sasha jung did, did we, bt you know very course at Armin Van Buren and all these, you know, legends in the electronic world. And that's how I kind of progressed in the dance world before I was even on American Idol. And my name was B Shorty, so everyone knew me as B Shorty. They didn't know my real name. That was my stage name. And
0: well- you may be be shorty, but <laughs> Maxwell, our son, calls me shorty my shorty princess. Oh, so we got cute. we got two shorties in the podcast. I,
1: I think it's so interesting everything you've been saying, but I think you let a, left out like a really critical piece of what might have been really the reason for your success. And you're humble about it, but you worked at Circuit City, and so <laughs> I think we need to give credit where credits due, You know, I mean, probably all the lessons that you
2: really learned that made
1: you a success, probably came from that job.
2: I mean, I put a really kick-ass car stereo in my car, and (laughs) I got all the promo albums for free, and all I did was sell audio, like, pro audio. (laughs) I could see you just rolling in after, like, a
1: rave, like, rave the night before till 4 a.m., and you roll into your (laughs) Circuit City job, like, what the fuck? Oh, and yeah. Just and with a lot of them. Selling people audio. It's yeah.
2: fantastic. It would be like four of us from the store <laughs> and then having to like go to like sleep for two hours and then go to work. You know, in my Camaro smoking clothes, cigarettes. Feeling oh, my God. All, I'd give anything cool.
1: to see like some video of you getting out of your Camaro. <laughs> oh, two hours sleep
2: walking into Circuit City. You would have you <laughs> dug it and laughed at the same time. Would I would love that. I had a white... T top camaro with this like booming system that is still my favorite music system to this day i wish i had that car just one time to (laughs) roll down the street and listen to the uh like three thousand dollar system i had in there at the time i love that you kind of were like
1: you know raised on the 80s and your folks obviously really liked music and were really into music like my folks not so much. My dad would listen to like news radio in the car and I'd be in the, the back backseat like, like pounding my head against the window. Like when does this stop? <laughs> Listening to traffic and like stock and bond news. So that's how I grew up. So we've tried to give uh, Maxwell like a, a profound love of the 80s because I definitely feel like there's a real 80s vibe in some of the stuff you do. Because oh, yeah. it's like electronic, <laughs> but you can just tell like that that background that inspiration came from there. And that's one of the reasons I love your music so much. Because I mm-hmm. I like grew up on the '80s, but I just think it's like the happiest music, and it just is so. There's such a range, and I love that you kind of take from that a little bit and use that in your music.
2: The thing I love about the '80s, thank you for that, it, is that everything was so eclectic and very artistic and conceptual like you're coming from the 70s that's very rock based i mean there's a couple artists like david bowie and um bang a gong you know um uh, a couple artists that are you know definitely artistic and and go out there elton john and but then you get to the 80s and it's just like people go buck wild everything everyone is pop music which is amazing like from this the pet shop boys to you know um uh, Cyndi Lauper and Madonna and you know not like even these one hit wonders are still destroying concerts you know and making dough and things were super melodic there was no There was no box really, you know what I mean? And now everything's in a box and it's, it's really sad. I I don't like pop music really today, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, I think that was the last era um, where I feel like record execs let the artists like be themselves, you know?
1: Do you think that today, I mean, I think that's fascinating um, that because I look at it like there's so many different boxes now. Maybe in the '80s there wasn't—you could be more of yourself, but there wasn't a lot of genres. And today there's so many genres and subgenres, mm-hmm. and you're the kind of artist that like plays in so many of them and mixes them together. Um, so you really are kind of like an '80s throwback because you are so unique. You are your own. you're like
0: a musical chameleon yeah in this amazing way so
2: you don't fit in a box i don't think you do Uh, it's uh it's it's an interesting uh i would say it's interesting for me to try and make something that's like set in a box and i've tried to do that and now i'm like oh i'll just make things a side project because i have i have definitely these sides to me and usually they're all on one album um and just the way music is consumed and made it just people want singles now and i'm an album person um but i've learned you know record labels would love me now in the past but back then you know they couldn't fit me in a box and that's all they wanted to do and then they would market me a certain way and then people would come see me and they'd be like well this, you know, we like that song, but then these other songs aren't like that, you know, so it's always, you know, uh, they're always just looking for the demographic. And you know, how how can we mark to market to that demographic? So um, it's been a blessing and a curse. And, um, you know, I, I feel like sometimes like, I, I was ahead of the curve or, or far behind it, you know, never meeting up. And now, <laughs> because of streaming it's like it doesn't matter you know like do whatever you want and, and which is great um but now no one's making money so there's that
1: are they not making money because of covid or are you talking about the shift away mm. from just kind of everything
2: went streaming um I, I hate it I'm, I mean I'll sound like the old man Moses now but uh it's just it's ruined music as an art form streaming period um the fact that no one will pay a dollar for a song now is is you know it's uh i won't say luckily i don't have a family to support because i would love to have a family to support but the struggle is real now so and it's um, the same
1: for everybody like you feel like across the board this is going to have for like every a, an impact on music yeah. in the cuz i remember we talked to um we actually had a conversation with uh, Moby and Paul Oakenfold. And and Paul was saying that it, it is changing music. And this was like seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and he was like, You're gonna see a real change in the quality of music that comes out because young, independent artists who are doing really cool things can't break through anymore because of streaming. So I'm just curious where where you think we stand. To, I mean, have we has it arrived? And it's just like you can't make a living.
2: Oh. What do you think? I mean, it's it's been here for the last you know five years i would say and it just gets worse when you know the head of spotify can pay himself out six billion dollars or whatever and you know yeah and and is still going to congress saying he wants lower to pay songwriters a lower percentage or people who actually own the master and so if i'm an artist back in the day let's say 10 years ago a record label would be like would sign you maybe they give you 50 grand to 150 grand obviously this is like if you're a new artist <clears throat> they own your master in perpetuity which means forever so you're never gonna get own the rights to the artwork anything printed any of that you know merchandise that has that imagery on it or and then they would start cutting 360 deals which means they take a percentage of all your merchandise all your touring money all that now um now now that it's streaming like you're not gonna ever recoup that money back then you know you'd go out you consume the music you would buy it you buy whatever ten dollars or 9.99 on uh iTunes you know and so then whatever your percentage is of that album goes to repaying back what you owe the record company. So if you owe them a hundred thousand dollars and you're only making, you know, eight cents an album. Wait, wait, uh, hold on. I got
1: confused. That's happens all the time, by the way, but, um, I'm confused because I thought the artist was getting paid 50 to 150. So why would you owe
2: the record company?
0: Welcome to Music recouping. Trying to understand the math <laughs> you know. of that. How do it's, you have
2: to recoup when they pay you? It's not like it's just like a loan from a bank, you know what I mean? Yeah. Except oh, they're I, not buying. Uh, I thought I, they were kind was, of buying your
1: buying it, buying the the master. They're not. They're like giving you a loan for the master
2: and then they own it. They own it regardless, but for you to make money again, like say, like say you're a platinum artist and you sell a million copies hopefully obviously the the record label didn't give you a million dollars and you're gonna recoup you know whatever maybe it it cost a hundred thousand dollars to make the album plus they gave you a hundred grand uh and then they put in you know whatever your contract like in my first record deal like you had to pay for half of your own music video and so my first album was ridiculous it was clive davis rca i did almost my whole entire album with ryan tedder um Samut's logo my friend bt everyone got paid whatever you know to produce that album and it was astronomical i'll never recoup it i sold like three hundred and fifty thousand copies which added up to like i made the record label after recoup like their if they just budgeted out how much it cost to make my album i probably made them three million dollars i still haven't recouped that album because i only had like nine cents per copy and that goes to what they gave me you know what i mean it sounds so so so, horrible so now 15 years later it's on spotify and it has so many streams i'm never gonna ever see that money and, and that's just the mechan that's the mechanical side of that if you don't if you're an artist and you don't write your songs and you don't get publishing then you're really screwed you know what i mean because then there's publishing because then someone could license your song or put it on uh
0: tv you commercial. know a television
2: show commercial exactly you know so that's where i've been fortunate enough to make money in the music industry but now everyone is going for that because that's really the only way to make money as just like if you were a studio artist like You can make money by playing shows, but we haven't really been playing shows for the last two years, too. Yeah.
0: Most people don't realize that these recording contracts are really like indentured servitude relationships. And I know from, you know, the majority of my clients when I started out in the business over two decades ago were record labels. And so I saw firsthand working with, you know, Grammy Award winning artists to, you know, independent artists that um, it was a a massive like climb up this this mountain, even for the most successful artists before they ever saw a penny from their work. Or I saw incredibly talented artist friends of mine get record deals only to be shelved by major labels so that, the competition couldn't scoop them up and their records never saw the light of day. So I think people have this perception of, you know, Oh, you get the record deal. Congratulations. You're going to be a millionaire tomorrow. And it's just (laughs) not the case.
2: It's not the case, especially now. I mean, I just got, I just signed another record deal in the beginning of last year. um, And it's more of a partnership and it's 50 50 and Mm -hmm. you know, they're just like, do whatever you want. We support you. And, and that's great. And I don't have to recoup a, a lump sump of money and I have own 50% of the master, which means, you know, no matter what I'm getting 50% if they if they license it, I have licensing deals too, um, you know, um, so uh, it's different. It's completely different. Now and the record industry, all these labels, they made the mistake of saying yes to all these streaming companies um because they're going to get money no matter what but the artist is not you know so they're basically double dipping <clears throat> which they've been doing for years the the record industry has been shady since the inception and it's never changed it it sounds like uh, you guys know way more about this than me but
1: this just sounds like like the mob like it sounds like a stacked deck okay. where they're just we have all the power and we're gonna give you money, but it's basically almost like a bridge loan, and you're gonna pay us back for that. And we're taking ownership of your master.
0: It's legit hard money lending. That is like, it's crazy no, it's like no business. There is no, such a
2: bad there's, deal. No, and just, there's no industry like it. That you is. It's, it's not just like when you terrible. make a movie. Like I get streaming services for nine dollars a month for Netflix and Paramount Plus and. And whatever plus and whatever, you know, plus <laughs> it's just now everything's there's a plus baby. Yeah, <laughs> uh, South Park did a great episode on it. It was hilarious. Um, <clears throat> but um, well, it's
1: it's happening in the music in the movie industry now too with Warner Brothers and HBO Max. Where there's mm-hmm. like uh, the Matrix, the Village Roadshow production company is suing, I think Warner Brothers because they're saying the. Matrix when it came out it only grossed like I don't, it was under like 40 million. And so they're saying it's all cuz it was on streaming. Why would anyone go to the theater when I can watch it at home? And so I feel like the movie industry is kind yeah, of yeah, kind of going
2: through the same thing. It's it's not. I I no? I, I completely disagree. The okay, movies are good. made by picture houses. I don't know what I'm saying. I mean, unless unless it's an independent film, but a movie takes hundreds of people to make and they're all getting paid. They're all part of a union. They all have benefits, they have health, they have pensions, they have that. I don't have that.
0: This Saves Lives is a ridiculously delicious food brand that gives back. Every single purchase sends life-saving food to a child in need. Co-founders Kristen Bell, Ryan Devlin, Todd Grinnell, and Ravi Patel launched This Saves Lives with a simple motto, buy a bar, feed a child, we eat together. Now with more than just bars, their products contain premium ingredients and are non-GMO, gluten-free, and kosher dairy. Their unique line of kids' products all contain one full serving of fruits and vegetables and are safe for school. To buy their ridiculously delicious snacks, head on over to thissaveslives.com.
1: Are you still wiping your butt with all that toilet paper you hoarded last year? How's that going for you? Let me introduce you to a new way to clean after you handle your business. Meet Hello Tushy. Tushy is the modern bidet that easily clips to any toilet and installs in just 10 minutes. Starting at just $99, Tushy sprays a precise stream of clean water and washes away all of that literal crap that toilet paper leaves behind. Upgrade your bathroom experience by going to HelloTushy, T-U-S-H-Y dot That's hellotushy.com. Tushy saves the environment and reduces your carbon butt print. Tushy saves you money on toilet paper, and Tushy saves your butt. Go to Hello Tushy. that's T-U-S-H-Y dot com. Stop wiping, start washing with Tushy. For over a decade, lifestyle brand Half United has been using fashion to feed people all over the world. To break the cycle of generational poverty, the community provides gainful employment to local artisans and vulnerable communities who create their handmade and sustainable products. For every Half United product purchase, seven meals are given to a child in need. Half United has donated over 1 million meals to date. Shop their beautiful jewelry, teas, handbags, and home accessories at halfunited.com and help fight global
0: hunger. Say ciao to tradition and hello to your new favorite plant-based Italian Bistro in Los Angeles, Brothers Meatballs. Brothers Meatballs was founded by brothers and food industry veterans Mauro and Sergio Corbia, who hail from the Isle of Sardinia, Italy. When they joined forces with second-generation Italian chef Mark Middleman, their self-proclaimed brother from another mother, the concept for Brothers Meatballs was born. Morrow was the founder and creator of Morrow's Cafe Inside Fred Siegel, a long-standing LA hotspot. Dissatisfied with the amount of plant-based dining options reminiscent of the home-cooked meals their mother once made, the brothers were determined to create a menu so delicious it would appeal to herbivores and omnivores alike. Inspired by the food mama so lovingly prepared for Sunday suppers, these meatballs are a modern take on a family classic. All menu items are 100% plant-based and made with Mama's secret ingredient, love. Angelinos can order lunch and dinner Wednesday through Sunday at BrothersMeatballs.com.
2: What I learned, which I learned way too late, was uh, don't be afraid to ask for help, and you know, swallow your pride because after when I was in the machine, like the fame machine, after Idol and. With my record label and management and like agents that were like double dipping and not doing what they told me and were taking forever to get back on answers i didn't know i could i could invest more in myself because i had all these yes people in my ear like whoa wait on that blah, blah 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 my album came out i didn't even tour it for like a year later it was like album should have came out and, and like a month later i should have been touring it you know and then i got dropped and then all these things and it's like oh you can you can do these things yourself. And that's who I was before, but I, I, I I got, you know, a little mental after that. I hated, hated fame. I hated LA. I like became a recluse, you know, got depressed and like bitter from the whole experience, this, this experience that changed my life overnight that I thought was a facade, you know, and that's a totally different thing. That almost doesn't have to do with the music industry that has to do with, you know, a entertainment culture that you know will do a number on you if if if, you know when you're not looking and you know i was looking at dead in the eye and everyone was looking back like everything's cool everything's cool and it was not cool so
0: well how did you blake go from you know being runner up on season six of american idol and the world fell in love with you and your amazing talents as a singer and a beatboxer. And then you get hit with the realities of fame and you're struggling with depression. What was that time in your life like, and how did you make it through to the other side to be in this great place now, creatively and, and personally fulfilled in your life?
2: It took time. Um, I would say, um, and because of my stubbornness, <laughs> I um, American Idol. The journey through that was amazing until the finale, and then from the finale on, it was not cool with them. Just like say, putting that in a box, like American Idol's here, and then I got signed to a record label. Like the American Idol journey, I had I had like the best time than any contestant has ever been on a television show. Like. I made so many connections, dearest friends, learned so much, you know, triumphed in a way, personally, that I was true to myself 100% until they wouldn't let me be, which was the finale. Um, and that it like like crushed me because just to make it short and sweet, I was like the one of the first contestants to ever arrange his own music on that show. Um, and then that's what I was doing. The producers were like, they stopped telling me, no, I couldn't do it. And they just let me be me after the first, just the first couple of weeks I was on the show. They're like, oh, this is him. We're just gonna let him be him, which was amazing. And I had to battle. I had many fights with Nigel Lithgow. And at the end, when it was just Jordan and I that week, which was like 20 hour days, I got four hours to sleep, maybe they wouldn't let me do that. And the song, you know, that i had to sing was written for her so they basically said i had second place before america knew and i was like distraught i didn't i couldn't i couldn't talk to my parents i didn't know i could like talk to a psychiatrist i didn't you know i was so out of sorts and then it ended and then on the stage like walking off stage claude davis comes up and is like i'll be seeing you soon we're signing you and it's just like this is weird, like I dreamt of this moment, and but not in this way. Like you're viewed as a television character and not even like the talent that you did on there, you know? Um, and this is when social media wasn't a thing. And they, I mean, I had a MySpace and a Facebook and a YouTube, but American Idol controlled it and they didn't give it back to me until like a month later. So then now you've just missed this opportunity to talk to fans. The entire time now, which everything is social media, like on these television shows, social media, social media, social media, like plug their socials. So they have all these fans now. Like if you're on American Idol Now or The Voice, like maybe you have like a million people. Back then, if social media, like American Idol, 30 million people watched it a night. You know, it'd be that's crazy. Like, so right out the gate out on from that finale week like the depression set in like i wasn't allowed to be me and that had never happened in my career like i've been a at that point in time i was a professional singer performer for seven years already i'd already played a thousand shows before i hit american idol stage so i was getting depressed without knowing it and then i started making my album I meet Clive Davis and my management tells me to shut up and, and like bite my tongue the entire time. He had a piece of chicken like right here for like 30 minutes. <laughs> and you wanted to tell uh, him. And, I, and my manager wouldn't even wouldn't even tell him. And I wanted to, <laughs> they told me to. Um, and everyone walked around eggshells with him. So they, my first single, which I, I, I'm proud of because I wrote the bridge because Ryan Tedder's a nice producer. And he saw the talent within me so we wrote nine songs together he wrote one that i that is on my album that i didn't write but breaking another was my first single and it shouldn't have been a single at all like honestly clive davis was notorious for testing it testing any artist that he had he would throw throw he would grab three of your songs from your album and he'd send it to 40 radio stations bam 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 which one will you play in your market which one's the one and then they that's how record labels used to decide Maybe they still do, I don't know. But he didn't do that. He just threw that song out there, which one of my songs had Lupe Fiasco on it Went called I Want You To Know My Name and I'm beatboxing on it with with Lupe, who was my favorite MCs at the time. He's amazing. He was number three on Billboard at the time, ready to do the music video. And Clive Davis just threw a song out. Clive Davis gets fired. Another guy comes in and drops me immediately. After I just made them like three million dollars. So that was my music career coming out of American Idol. Um I was with Jeff Frasco at CAA. He didn't do anything for my career at all, not one damn thing. Um, sent me to some low lowly agent. Um, and then they finally booked my tour a year later after I dropped. This is January 2008, I buy my house overzealous because I had all these yes people in my uh, ear. Um, Shouldn't have bought a house at all because two months later, the market economy collapsed. Got a business manager. They're like, you need to sell your house immediately. So that didn't happen. I had to short sell. So all the money I made from my record label was gone. I just became super depressed. I started drinking like two bottles of wine a night, smoking copious amounts of weed uh, having panic attacks and gaining like 30 pounds and it was just like like a two two and a half year depression and I came to California and stayed at my friend DJ Dan's house for like almost a year and um, <clears throat> we go ba- way back in the Seattle scene. Um, he's a house funky house legend um DJ and producer and he was kind enough to let me stay in his his uh guest room in Eagle Rock for you know 10 months to like get gain focus and you know because he's a very calm yeah you know individual and a lot of solace he doesn't have a lot of people over and I just like focused on making another album because that's all I knew what to do so that birthed you know heartbreak on vinyl which is my album about love and loss and um that's i think how any musician or vocalist kind or songwriter in general kind of copes with things you know um music is catharsis and but i should have gone to therapy at that moment in time and i didn't go to therapy for like 10 years like a decade it was really dumb. <laughs> I uh I you know, I kept having panic attacks on the side of the road. Um I'd be like pulling over and crying for like a half hour on like the 101. Just you know, like why? Why? Didn't I didn't know I I'd never been depressed in my life. I didn't know that you know, I was like that depressed like uh anything would set me off and um it, the closing point was uh kind of just, I had like a bunch of bingey nights that were just really bad, just stupid shit. I'm like, I'm too old for this. Like, wh- what am I doing? Like, why did you put yourself in that situation? And so I kind of just cleaned up my act. Uh, and soon I finally, after I short sold my house, it took so long. It took like two years to short sell it. Um, <clears throat> and then I packed up my bags and I moved to LA and that kind of was like the game changer. Um, I started working out every day. I started eating healthy. I started, you know, meditating a little, doing some yoga, swimming a lot. I like to swim. Um, and that was the start of my 10 year at, uh, California university. (laughs) It's,
0: it's so amazing, Blake, how far you've come and all the twists and turns, you know, in your, in your journey. Um, and, my heart goes out to you for having the experience of you know these folks in the music industry not letting you be your authentic self
1: they're shooting themselves in the foot because if they'd let him continue to be him, would have been even more successful.
0: well, yes, they would have made more money together with Blake, but for Blake's you know mental health and and well-being, we have to as humans just be who we are. and if someone is trying to control us and Put us in, in a box, um, that's just stifling. And mm-hmm. and I've been where you were, Blake, having those panic attacks literally on the side of the road crying as well. So I I completely empathize. Um, and I'm so glad that you're in this amazing place now. And I'm a big believer that, you know, it's not what happens to us, but how we respond to it that defines our character. And so you've Bounce back um, in such a positive way and have gone on to continue to create beautiful music and art from those experiences, which millions of people around the world um, enjoy. And and one of those new projects, which we love, The Private Language, we're always rocking out to the Everybody (laughs) Wants to Rule the World cover and to Cali Girls. so. Tell us about that because that is, um, you know, something new and exciting that you're working on. Um, it's got a little bit of mystery and sex appeal to it.
2: So tell <laughs> us about the private language. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you. Um, I'm glad we are all happy and healthy and, you know, uh, have grown from our panic attack riddled days. And, um, you know, I, it is definitely a journey and, and it's constant, you know, we're constantly changing and, uh, and growing. Hopefully, you know, that's what I, I strive to be a better person every day. So, um, uh, thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> the private language, um, where do I begin? So I've been playing with this amazing human KJ Sokka since 2002. Um, he's been my drummer. He's a dr- He's a drummer for pendulum. He was in Illenium, who's massive right now um and he and i just have always worked great together i'm the light he's the dark i'm the yang he's the yang and we have always done things for each other's albums but never had a project and when i was making my last album wanderlust unknown i kind of was trying to put myself in a box because i knew what i wanted for the first time in making an album i had like i finally had a vision because usually i just everything's organic and i just kind of go for it and then i like make a bunch of songs and then i'm like okay these are making the album this one for wanderlust i was like okay it's jazz a little bit hip-hop it's definitely it's the first album i'm completely producing myself but then i also like to challenge myself when i'm making music and learn new instruments and new programs or, or whatever so i bought a bass um i started learning how to play the guitar better because i just i never really had lessons so i started taking some lessons and i always wanted to kind of make like a surfy project not necessarily like rockabilly or anything but just like that surf guitar sound i loved it growing up i was a huge fan of you know link ray and the beach boys and and just that you know i don't, I don't know i just love that sound of the guitar um, and I've always been like an acoustic guitar player. So with the Private Language, it started out as just like almost like a six-song EP of I didn't know what it was. And then Kevin and I had he had finally moved to LA. I've been was begging him for like ten years, <laughs> like why are you coming to LA? Come on, like you're not you're not in London now. Like let's let's go let's go. And he um, finally came. And my neighbor was an amazing bass. Player, I was like, let's just, let's make a trio. And let's, you know, I was thinking of like Mute Math who was one of my favorite, favorite bands. And I
0: love them. I went to their concert, yeah, it was so, so good.
2: Yeah, so I was thinking of like Duran Duran, just slap bass, but in in a pop, you know, electronic concept. Like what would it be? It'd be funky and rocky and stuff. Um, <clears throat> and actually Ryan, uh, bass player came up with the private language but he was selling his house he was moving he was having a kid he's like it's yours i can't do this project um which was very sweet of him didn't need to do um and so kevin and i started working and it stemmed from a beat we made and then these six songs six arrangements they were i mean they weren't even songs yet you know um i had melodies um and it just kind of got birth and i and i i wanted to do something like a concept of Um, Empire of the Sun or you know movies like The Fall or like The Cell with Lo, like just something really highly conceptual um, which is hard to do when you don't have money to do it (laughs) finding out I'm finding out with this project um, because everything costs and uh, especially in the high fashion world Um, but um, uh, the blend of sound that kevin and i bring to each other is is unique and just trying to make music that's not like in a box and and it's tough it's really tough for me as a songwriter because i'm such a pop songwriter like i've listened to pop in this format and this but i've also listened to electronic music which isn't pop but now electronic music is so pop it's incredible it's crazy how popular edm everyone that was listening to electronic dance music before hates the term EDM. But um, so we're just trying to come up with like this really cool hybrid sound. And every song sounds like us, but every song doesn't sound like each other. You know what I mean? Uh, You said you like Cali Girl, which is great. That's like the most pop song that we have. These other ones are very darker, moodier. Kind of escapism, um, some a little bit of social messages. We're trying to combine our sound with a lot of environmental and sustainable companies and work It's awesome. work, work to um, you know put awareness out there that you can you know do little changes in your life that are gonna help you know preserve our planet. So that's kind of our mission. Um, and our sound is is just fun happy kind of stony you know a little bit of surfy reverb guitar with maybe a tremolo and then electronic beats and um you know it all kind of stemmed from that time in 2019 where i was all over the place because i was producing other artists making two out like two albums basically like we have an album done but you know It was funny, we were putting, we were going to release that cover of Everybody Once Through the World just out there, um, like January of, no, I guess it was March. It was March. We had it slated for like March 14th or something, whatever that Friday was in the middle of March to be. Surprise, the private language is out. And my name and his name wasn't gonna be attached and it was gonna be like even more masks because we wear masks, my voice is, a character it's not it's my voice completely but it's format shifted which it takes my tone from la to la you know it's, it's the same tone it's the same note but i sound like a different human and that's you know i first concept was like we're aliens from a different planet and i was like I you know what i mean <laughs> just trying to come up with you know but that doesn't work and it's just kind of like eh. i'm like there's dudes with marshmallows and rats on their their head you know what i mean like and
0: they've made like hundreds of millions of dollars off of those crazy yeah, masks. Yeah, yeah,
2: but that's not sexy to me. Like, there's yeah. nothing sexy about a a, a, a balloon animal, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, and so uh, this one, I, I wanted a little, you know, I don't know, a little more, more sexy and more accessible, I would say, you know, but also mysterious. And it's really hard to do. Like, all this concept was was, you know. I was working, working on it for so long. And then it's like, we live in the world of, you know, someone can type something in within a second. And if anyone's posted anything, you know, there's no way people will know it's Blake Lewis by looking at me and Kevin with these masks on, you know, and I was hoping these masks would be maybe a little more mysterious. Um, and so we decided to say it's our project. You know, at first was like, no, no. And I battled with Kevin all the time because he's like, we have to say it's us. There's no way. And he was right. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I just, I miss that mystery of the 80s. Like, I miss the mystery of paper magazines um, and going to record stores. And, you know, I've been saying it for for years and years and years, you know, and this is like who I am. So I'm just kind of owning who I am and um you know realizing that there's not a lot of mystery left in this world which is really sad honestly when it comes to art um and you know as far as music you know some people can do it well i'm sure but uh you know we definitely struggled because also a pandemic happened in the middle of us trying to uh release something new there's always something very nervous and and kind of scary when you're releasing new music out of the world in general and then when you have a new project that doesn't sound like you you're not trying to look like you it's even it it was even more nerve-wracking like the first month leading up luckily our friend well actually we reached out to our friend bt uh and asked if we could do a remix of one of his songs i heard the song and i was like oh this would be so fun to remix which doesn't always happen um and then it, we did it in like four days and turned it in and he loved it. And it ended up being the the biggest remix for, him, for, for that song for him, which was great. And then that opened the doorway to us getting signed by Black Hole, which we don't sound like anyone on their label. Um, and it's very like progressive house trance, um, you know, a certain style. Um, but luckily, um, Arnie, the head of the label, loves what we do and and fully supports it and you know we couldn't be happier that we have a home which is amazing which is amazing to say um a home that we like to live in there you go so
0: well that's super awesome and we hope everyone checks out your new music with the private language it's super sexy super vibey i'm always rocking it in the car we play it at home we love it and it's awesome We're going to wrap up Blake with our final question that we ask all of our guests on the True Heart podcast, and that is: Don't give us a drum roll. Oh my
1: god! I was was going to go. I was going to totally top that and go.
0: Wiki wiki wiki.
1: But (laughs) probably.
0: (laughs) So glad you did it. Yeah,
1: I know. Thank God I didn't do anything. Oh
0: wait, I did. What do you want your legacy to be, Blake?
2: Oh man. To be? Um, gosh, that's tough. I mean, I would say my kid that I don't have. So, um, you know, um, just that my music made an impact, a positive impact. Um, yeah, that's it.
0: I think you've already accomplished it because we have seen it live. You've donated your time and incredible talent to so many of our charity events over the years. And every time you step up to the mic and perform, people are so happy. You give them that experience of joy and just what it means to be like in this groove, in this (laughs) vibe and forgetting about your problems and just having fun and, and letting go and you're someone that you never phone it in. You always give 110% and you give like a legit show and you, you can leave see your the passion. heart on the stage. You
1: can see the passion that you have for it. And it's so true. Anyone who has not checked out Blake's music, you got to go check it out. It's unbelievable and there's such a wide range. There's something for everyone, I feel like. <laughs> Uh, but you gotta go check it out. It's fantastic.
0: Yes, you are you are a beast of talent, Blake Lewis. and also, an exceptional human being.
2: Yeah, uh, I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for having me. It's been so wonderful seeing your face. Hey guys, don't forget, you can subscribe wherever podcasts are found.
1: Uh, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star review and tell us what you think of the show. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube. Um, you can watch and you can subscribe there as well. So thanks for checking us out.
0: And thank you to our good friend Blake Lewis for blessing the true heart podcast today with um, his amazing life experiences and the incredible journey that he's been on um, as a musician and as a beatboxer. We learned so much um, from Blake and to everybody out there who aspires to have a career in music. um, We hope that you picked up some invaluable insights um, from Blake and, and you go forward and, Pursue, pursue those dreams.
1: He's a, he's a raw musical powerhouse. So anyone out there, if you haven't already checked out his music, you gotta go check it out. It's unbelievable. Like you just sit back and you go, how is that a person making those sounds? How is he doing this? And then his genres are like kind of bleed into each other. It's just so cool. So go check it out right
0: away. Yeah, and make sure to check out the Private Language Blake's new music project on all social media channels and on the streaming platforms, even though he's not the biggest fan, but do stream and get him those downloads. Um, you'll you'll love it. It's great stuff. And uh, keep it locked here because next week we have another amazing episode of the True Heart Podcast. We'll be talking to Lynn and David Talbert, the producers of the Netflix hit film, Jingle Jangle. So you don't want to miss out. It's going to be a great episode.
1: Wiki Wiki. So shout out to Blake right there.